Brothers and sisters in Christ, last time we heard the teaching of God's Word from the second half of Romans 13, and we heard the call to owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. By this call and command from the Apostle Paul, we understood that loving one another in the church is entirely central to the Christian life. Therefore, perhaps the most basic lesson that a believer in Christ, uh, or is that a believer in Christ belongs in the church. There are those who confess faith in Christ, but have little or no use for the church. This should not be. Indeed, it, it cannot be. In the, in the very least, it, it casts significant doubt as to the truth of a person's faith, who says, I believe in Christ, I'm just not interested in his church. On the next level up from there, the call to owe no one anything except to love one another teaches us how important it is to hear and answer this command. There is a sense, I believe, that Paul is using hyperbole, a a kind of exaggerated speech, in order to put an exclamation point on the call to love each other. Otherwise, he is also certainly teaching that we do have a debt to pay to Christ. It's not that we can pay it. It's not that we are expected to repay the Lord for his kindness and goodness to us. And yet we live as debtors to Christ. Paul even wrote back in Romans 8:12, "So then, brothers, we are debtors." not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But here's the thing, that that as we pay our debt, so to speak, the psalmist calls it paying his vows uh, to the Lord. As, As we pay our debt, we pay it, in a sense, not to Christ, who needs nothing from us anyhow, Instead, we we pay our debt, certainly by loving Christ, but by loving Christ, by loving one another within the church. However, it's one thing to hear and say amen to the call to love one another. It's another thing, a further thing, actually to do it, to apply this teaching of God's Word to various situations in in the Christian life. I mean, I mean, who's going to disagree, right, with the, the call to love one another? Would anyone say, no, no, that can't be right, that isn't true? Of course we are to love each other, but the call to love each other can easily become a, a platitude, uh, something we say because it sounds good, it, it rings well upon our ears, but do we do it? And are there times when we don't even realize that we're not doing it? And we don't do it even after saying amen to the call to love each other in the church on any given Sunday. Or maybe, maybe we don't even know how to do it. So the next thing that Paul does is to give us a kind of case study in loving each other. A case study. Uh, It's a kind of example even more a a real-life application of a lesson that has been taught. We have now the command to love each other, but what is that going to look like? How will it be applied? And perhaps the case study presented by Paul in Romans 14 now 
is hypothetical, made up, again, as an example of how the call to love each other might be answered in the church. But it's more likely, I think, that Paul was addressing a known problem in the church at Rome. Paul had likely heard that there was quarreling within the congregation of believers at Rome, specifically quarreling over food laws. So the first point is this, the call not to quarrel over opinions. Again, the last passage began with the call to love each other within the church. Now the call to love each other gets more specific as Paul applies the call to love to a specific situation. Verse 1 reads, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Paul is likely addressing the case of of new believers in Christ who were coming out of Judaism and into the church. We might think of it this way, that, that they were transferring their membership from the local synagogue to the local Christian church. And they were often weak in faith. They were still clinging to the ceremonial laws of God's commands in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. They had come to believe in Christ, but they did not yet understand, or, or they just couldn't bring themselves to start eating food that they had never before been allowed to eat. It would have been like a, a prisoner who had spent 30 years in jail, 30 years as an inmate, And then the day comes for him to be released. The first door opens, and he walks through it obediently. The second gate opens. He keeps going. The third gate, the fourth gate, until he reaches the final gate in the outer wall of the prison. The gate is opened, and the guards stand there, having escorted him to that point. They stand there waiting for him to go, but he looks into the, the face of the guards with wonderment. Really? I can, I can just keep going? I can just step outside the prison? I'm, I'm free to go and you're not going to stop me? He can hardly believe it. And this situation fits with what Paul writes in, in Galatians 3, verses 22 and 23. He writes, But the Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now faith, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The ceremonial laws within God's law, including the food laws, were meant to really to make it hard to worship God, even, even really impossible for Israel to keep. They were always finding themselves to be unclean and needing to make sacrifice at the temple in order to be made clean again. And the ceremonial laws were always meant to to point up the the real issue, the moral purity of the people, or, or more to the point, the moral impurity, the sin of the people, in order that they might cast themselves upon God's mercy and and long for the coming of the Messiah to share with them the credit of his perfect obedience, even God's own righteousness. Another story to help us understand 
these new believers is the story of the Apostle Peter's struggle with giving up the food laws. It even took a vision given to him by Christ in, uh, in Acts 10, verse 10. It says that Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a, a great sheet descending, letting, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then he heard this instruction from, from Christ. What God has made clean, do not call common. It was what we call an epiphany for Peter, that he might finally realize, that he might ultimately accept that the ceremonial regulations of God's law had been fulfilled because God's people had been made clean by the blood of Jesus at the cross. And so Paul goes on to write, starting in verse 2, one person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. It's clear that Paul is not saying, oh, it's just fine if, if they decline to eat what was previously forbidden. Instead, he makes it clear, both in verse 1 and in verse 2, that such persons are weak. It's just that they hadn't learned it yet, or they hadn't been able to accept it yet. And that's why in other places, Paul condemns the, the perpetuation of Jewish food laws. When believers are young, they need time. They, they deserve patience. But when someone in the church makes himself a teacher and begins to teach that Christians must follow, uh, must continue to follow the ceremonial laws, well, then Paul is adamant and he is firm. He even confronted Peter one time when Peter was refusing to eat with Gentiles. And he did so apparently to please other Jewish Christians who were still trying to foist the ceremonial law upon the church. Well, what does this all have to do with us? None of us, I, I would suppose, uh, struggles with Old Testament food laws. But the broader point is this. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. It's, it's a remarkable thing that Paul calls this an opinion, when again, in other places, he is adamant, and his teaching is hot, we might say. But for us, the word opinion brings this teaching to bear upon us. Because is there not some great number of things that we might disagree about within the church? And the point is, is not that uh, none of such issues are, are unimportant. It's not to say that all opinions are equally val valid and, and that there are not right, uh, wrong opinions and, and right opinions. The point is that we must not quarrel over issues on which we disagree. Discuss them, yes. Deliberate over them by all means, but never with quarreling, never in a way that divides the church as we fail to love each other in the church. So what are our issues that we might quarrel over? Well, instead of naming any of them, I, 
I would instead do this. I would make a plea for our use of our confessions to maintain unity in the church. In other words, instead of naming the issues on which we might disagree, let's remember what we do agree on, what we are responsible to believe and and to hold each other accountable to believe. There are some who say that doctrine divides, and it does. Our commitment to the Westminster Standards brings a a degree of division, a a degree of separation between us and other churches and other believers who maybe don't believe in even using confessions, but otherwise uh, who don't believe exactly as we do, delineated by our confessions. But doctrine also unites our confessions unite us, to, and they do so by laying out the things that we believe God's Word is clearly teaching. So let us know our confessions. And if there are issues that are not clearly decided within our confessions, and we disagree on those issues, then we must not allow our disagreement to divide us. Quarreling is division even sinful division when it happens in the church. Quarreling in the church is the failure to love each other as we are called and commanded. And Paul's remarkable point here is that even when one opinion is clearly wrong and the other opinion is clearly right, it still shouldn't bring about quarreling. It takes us back to that crucial passage in 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at it last week where Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for their quarreling. They were, they were even taking each other to court, filing lawsuits against each other. And this in front of unbelievers, says Paul, or laments Paul. But here, the harm done is not so much the poor witness to the world, I'm sure that's included, but the damage done is to the unity of the church. So Paul's question in 1 Corinthians 6 applies here as well. Why not rather be wronged? Only here it's more the sense of, why why do you always have to be right? Why do you have to have the last word? Uh, Why not see your brother or your sister with whom you disagree as your weaker brother or sister? Be patient and leave it at that. There is far more that we agree on than we disagree on. Just pick up your confessions and read. Otherwise, maybe you're the one who's wrong. Is it too hard to believe? Are we too proud to admit that maybe we hold opinions that might later change? In the meantime, love each other. Until then, do not quarrel over opinions, and let us recognize our brother for who he is, our brother in Christ, and our sister for who she is, our sister in Christ. So how are we going to do this? I've already given you one answer. Let us focus on our confessional unity. But the Apostle Paul has another answer, obviously an even better one. (laughs) The second point is giving honor and thanksgiving to Christ. In other words, let Christ himself be, not not the thing, but the one who unites the church. 
We see this already in verse 4 as Paul asks, uh, uh, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What a great comfort for you, that with Christ as your master, you will be upheld, and you will be upheld by him. Whether we hold wrong opinions or right opinions, we have Christ as our master, and he will uphold us. But if we take such comfort for ourselves, why should we withhold that hope and assurance from our brother by insisting that he agree with us? What? Do we we think that he needs to agree with us if he would be saved? Then what if we aren't 100% right in our opinions? Are we saved? Instead, all our righteousness says the prophet, is as filthy rags. Even our correct opinions need to be cleansed. Even our repentance needs to be repented of. But our hope and our assurance are found not in being right on every last issue, but in Christ who upholds us. The idea, the image of Christ upholding the one who trusts in him ought to remind us of the account that John gives of coming before Jesus recorded in in Revelation 1. John gives a a description, as, as best he can, of the exalted and glorified Christ standing among the lampstands, which are the churches. And the image and experience are, are so fearful that it's, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John's vision and encounter with the risen Christ, first of all, shows us that our correct opinions are not going to save us. And our brother's wrong opinion is not going to condemn him. But furthermore, even as we are leveled, leveled to the ground by the holiness of Christ, yet the one who, who puts us on our face is the very same one who causes us to stand, the one who upholds us. And yet back in Romans 14, Paul goes on to write in verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And in verse 6, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, what a, what a remarkable thing. Can we hear it? That Paul isn't saying that both opinions are right. He clearly is using a case in which one is wrong and the other is right. He clearly teaches in other places that all foods are clean. And yet here he allows that even the one who is wrong, who abstains from eating, at least is sincerely wrong, we might say. He abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Finally, then, judgment belongs to God. Last time, to close the previous passage, Paul uh, gives reference uh, to the return of Christ. He, uh, he wrote 
besides this, you, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, uh, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul is referring to the return of Christ. It's part of his urging for believers to, to strive for obedience in, in their Christian lives. Jesus is coming. With each day, the day of His coming is drawing ever closer. So expect it. Don't live for this world. Don't live according to the ways of this world because Jesus is coming. He is coming. Now, with this first passage in Romans 14, Paul does the same thing. He writes in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. The point is to remember, again, the return of Christ, to remember that judgment is coming, but not in order, Paul's point is not to cast uh, believers on, uh, upon a bed of doubt. It's not to make God's people fearful of the coming judgment because Paul has already written and taught that Christ will uphold his own. And in verse 9, he writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. The point of remembering the, the coming judgment is instead that we might not judge, not on issues of opinion, not judging new believers when they need uh, time to work through certain things, things that they have not come to understand or issues that they haven't yet come to accept. And how can we understand this last verse then, verse 12? So then, writes Paul, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, should this make us fearful of the coming judgment? In one sense, yes. We should be fearful of the coming judgment, but not fearing that God's judgment will fall upon us. As believers in Christ, we know and believe that Christ has, has taken upon Himself at the cross the full wrath and judgment and punishment of God for our sins. If we don't believe that, then we aren't Christians. That's what it means to believe in Christ. It's that classic question. You say you believe in Christ, but what do you believe about Christ. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the cross where Christ made atonement for our sins, where he propitiated for our sins. And that leaves us to live the Christian life with joy, with love for the one who so loved us that he suffered and died for us. And it leaves us to live the Christian life in gratitude serving Christ with joy and with sure hope and with great peace. So in what sense should we fear the coming judgment? Well, we should fear God's judgment by leaving it to Him. And even now, if, if we have differing opinions and such disagreements lead to quarreling, are we not putting ourselves in the place of God? Is it not the work of Christ by His Spirit to sanctify us and our brothers and sisters, all of us? It's not one brother's job to correct another. Christ might use one brother to disciple another, 
Proverbs 27, verse 17, you know the verse, as, as iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. But it is ultimately, ultimately Christ who works by His Spirit to bring each of us more and more to His truth and to conform us more and more to His image. God's Word is clear that on the day of judgment, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And earlier in Romans, in Romans 2, we heard the teaching that God will render to each one according to his works. The judgment of God is coming. But that's why the gospel is such good news. Because whatever the record shows of our sins on the day of judgment, as believers in Christ, our record now contains the perfect obedience of Christ. God will render to each according to his works. But the works of Christ, the very righteousness of Christ, is written large within the record of our works. And we will be acquitted in the day of judgment. Our sins are already paid for. And being a good and just God, he will certainly not punish sin twice. And the obedience that saves us is fully the obedience of Christ. So let us certainly strive to be right in our opinions, according to the word of God. But let us do so from gratitude and not as if by being right, we are saving ourselves. But again, if such comfort is ours, and I, I hope it is yours, and may it be indeed our joyful comfort, but then extend that comfort to your brother, to your sister in Christ. Let's not quarrel over opinions. Let us together stand firm upon the gospel. Christ upholds the one who is right just as much as he upholds the one who is wrong. He is the Savior of all those who look to faith in him. Let's pray. We pray that, O oh God, you would keep us from quarreling within this congregation. We do acknowledge and we thank you that within the church, iron sharpens iron. We can be a blessing to each other. We can help each other. We can challenge each other. But help us never to quarrel. Help us never to fight. Help us not to think less of each other because we disagree on various issues. And we do thank you for our confessions. We thank you for our fathers and mothers who have gone before us, who have prepared our confessions. And we thank you for the intervening generations who have tested them against your word over and over and over again. We thank you that we can turn to them and we can find there our agreement. And we pray that that truth, your truth, taught in our confessions will be that which unites us and that our differences and our disagreements will never divide us. Grant your blessing upon the, your church, O Christ. And we ask and pray these things in your name. Amen.